Hello, I'm Alan Higgins, and you are listening to the Design Talk podcast. The following recording is a cross-pod release with The Blind Spot, a podcast created by Tina Lowe, Accessibility Officer at University College Dublin, Ireland. This episode was recorded on the 8th of November 2021. Welcome to The Blind Spot. I'm your host, Tina Lowe. This podcast looks to show everyone about making Ireland accessible for all. Today's episode, we're going to chat with Dara Ryder and Alva Keneally about access to higher education before and during COVID. Thanks, Tina. Hey, thanks, thanks, Tina, for, for the invite. It's great to be here. Dara, if you could start by telling us a bit about your background. Sure. My name is Dara Ryder, CEO of AHEAD. And I've been with AHEAD now for about 12 years in a variety of roles. So initially, I actually graduated from music technology from Queen's University. So a very uh, unusual path maybe to, to end up. It isn't that usually the way. But I suppose where I became interested really in inclusion was as a lecturer in further education when I was uh, teaching music technology. And I began really to, to um, I suppose, come up against students with disabilities in my classroom and have dialogue with them and engagement with them. And I began to see their challenges firsthand. And what really interested me was actually how much of their challenge was related to what I was doing. You know, I was the barrier. Uh, just my lack of awareness about it, my lack of understanding about it. So that's really how I began to become interested. So um, when I saw a position open up and ahead, um, I jumped at it. And I've been working in a variety of roles there ever since. So right through from, um, from producing research to building national guidance to building e-learning programs for staff and further in higher education. And now my role as CEO. And Dara, I know that you're working in AHEAD quite a number of years, so can you tell the listeners in what way life has changed? I know when I, I worked in AHEAD a number of years ago, and for example, we were before mobile phone times, all digital access, so can you give us an idea roughly how it was like for students with disabilities? Absolutely, and I suppose maybe it's, it's actually useful to tell a bit of the, the story of the founding of AHEAD because it's, it's really central to that. So the organisation really uh, comes from um, really the advocacy of the students because what happened here was there was actually a student here in UCD by the name of Jerry Ellis who, um, who approached the then registrar of UCD, John Kelly, saying enough is enough because what was happening was that this student who was blind uh, was essentially only really able to access uh, education because of the support of his family. So this student was literally having his books read to him by his family members. Um, all of the support in terms of getting around the campus, finding the lecture halls, was only really there because of the support of the family. And we know, of course, that that situation isn't going to be the same for everybody. So he said enough is enough, and that was in the late 1980s. Now it looks very, very different in that we have a very structured approach to the provision of supports for higher education, and increasingly we have a, a much greater focus on what happens in the classroom and looking at the actual pedagogy mm. and how we can remove barriers. So I think the big shift, I suppose, I'm seeing is... For starters, we have much more focused uh, quality support in, in the area of reasonable accommodations. In other words, what are the kind of things we can do to add on to the students to help them to get over the barriers? And then more increasingly, what are those barriers and how can we remove them at the point of delivery? Uh, so that's that's the big focus for me, you know. Instead of this uh, increased focus on putting up ladders for students, if you like, mm. we're focused on smashing down barriers. Uh, so that, that's where I see things happening. Now, I don't want to present a, a picture as <laughs> if there's, everything's rosy in the garden. No. We're still only no. really uh, on the on the road to that journey. But so, I think that's where so it's. I was a mature student myself, having acquired my blindness, and I went to UCD. I I know Jerry, and I knew John Kelly, the registrar then of UCD and chairman of AHEAD, and I know. When we started, we used things like people would laugh at you now, tape recorders. And I never had Braille, so I spent my life rooting through 
two million boxes of types to find the right <laughs> book or the right lecture. So all those things have changed. And it just could you just give kind of paint a bit of a picture just for mm. people who have never known life before a mobile phone or oh, digital mean, online access, all that kind of thing. Just what it was like. Absolutely. You know? I mean, it posed huge challenges for students and indeed for the professional supporting students. So you'd have, uh, for example, said mentioned physical print books. Uh, you would have to have a personal assistant to read uh, a book like that in the past. So obviously everything is digital now. And even now that we have technologies that can read physical books you know, using, using the technologies to read aloud. So it's immensely changed. And one of the things that I love about working with people with disabilities is that a lot of the technologies that they use as specialised technologies today are the mainstream technologies of the future. You see this repeatedly throughout history, things like the remote control for a television invented to support people with disabilities, the telephone invented mm-hmm. to support people with disabilities. There's this lovely phrase that a, a guy called Noel Joyce uh, used in one of our webinars this year. He said, people with disabilities can help you to predict the future. <laughs> I <laughs> love that phrase. It's very yeah. grandiose, but that's yeah. what he meant. What he meant was that if you start to look at the needs of people with disabilities today, it's that flexibility uh, that they need is actually something that we all benefit from. So when we can take those focuses and build them into our practices mm. and mainstream well, about technologies that, and environments. That leads really, really well into, there's, you could tell, you, we could talk more about the projects that AHEAD are working on, but there is one thing, a huge thing at the moment, which is exactly what you're saying. It's the national universal design and learning approach. And mm. why I'm saying that is if you could explain to the listeners, because what you've just said, it's true. If a document is accessible to a person who uses a screen reader, such as myself, then it's accessible for everybody. But the hard part is to teach or show people that. Yeah. yeah. In or- so could you just say th- outline how that sure, works? Sure, well, but there's this concept called universal design for learning. Basically, it's built on decades of research in neuroscience and the learning sciences. And it's basically the neuroscience shows us a kind of fundamental principle, which is that learning is as, as unique to individuals as their fingerprints. So from one learner to the next, it's a very different experience. So how do we respond to that in our classrooms? Well, we respond to it by building in flexibility. So we design to the edges of the classroom. In other words, we design for all rather than designing for a mythical average learner who sits in the, in the middle of, all of that, those pieces. So I suppose this framework, uh, which I said is built on the learning sciences and neurosciences, can help educators and that it translates that into very practical principles and guidelines and checkpoints. And the work that we're doing right now is a real collaborative work with UCD to deliver to the entire further and higher education section as much as possible to understand these principles and get people on the road to actually how they can implement them within their teaching practices. And right now we have more than a thousand educators from across further and higher education working with us to learn more. And that's all across the country? All across the country, in in every county in the country, and uh, in most higher education institutions and, and every education and training board. And are there other AHEAD projects? I know we have, we've spoken mainly about education, but a big area for people with graduates or students with disabilities is employment. So can Absolutely. you talk to us about what AHEAD have done on employment? Yeah, well, I suppose we've made huge strides with regards to access to higher education. I think uh, research shows in the last 11 years there's been a 226% increase in engagement with higher education in terms of the numbers engaging. So we're making massive, massive strides there, but we're still seeing as on the graduate employment side, huge, huge barriers. So Ireland is actually the fourth lowest employment rate of people with disabilities in Europe. Yeah. So we're very poor on this record. And we have a programme called WAM, which is a work placement programme for graduates with disabilities, where we're working to offer paid, mentored work placements uh, for graduates all across the country. As I said, uh, we roughly do about somewhere between 30 and 50 placements every year. We've placed more than 500 since the programme began. So that's been a, a huge success for us. And they're matched to roles that they can do that they've studied. 
Exactly. And, and they get all, mentored and they get paid properly. Absolutely. They get yeah. paid. It's a fundamental principle yeah. program. They get paid at market yeah. rate for those pieces as well. So, yeah, I mean, what it is is that you know, graduate CVs often don't look the same as, as other graduates because they haven't had the access to incidental employment, yeah. the access to clubs and societies, volunteering opportunities. So they can look a little bit more bared maybe than, uh, than other graduate yeah. CVs. And then so, the whole area of disclosing your disability. Absolutely. It's massive. Yeah, it's massive. Yeah, and we've yeah, actually done yeah. a really interesting piece of research uh, earlier this year with employers to survey their attitudes, which really highlights the disconnect around the disclosure issue. Mm-hmm. It shows that employers actually expect disclosure from graduates with disability and they see it actually as a breach of trust if, if graduates don't, don't disclose. Yeah. But they don't understand the significance of that decision and that many of them have experienced uh, discrimination in the past and almost on a regular basis. So they're making a very sensitive call on whether they do or don't disclose themselves. So your work is continuing really well. Can you tell me, say, how COVID has come into it? For ah, COVID. In, in the workplace. I thought we were going to have one chat without COVID, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Yeah. No, but it comes up everywhere and of course it's reshaped uh, our lives. And I suppose uh, it's presented many, many challenges and many, many opportunities. You know, again, I mentioned that piece around people with disabilities can sort of see the future with these things. And mm. the same is true with COVID because what happened is that people with disabilities have been calling for access to uh, lectures in a remote capacity for a long, long time. And suddenly overnight, that's become the norm in higher education. So certainly we want to see a lot of that moving forward. We want to see a lot of that retained. But of course, it has provided many, many challenges for people in terms of the isolation, the lack of connection to support services. And we've actually just released a new piece of research on learning from home just last week, which kind of covers a lot of this. I think what's really interesting in that research is that we've asked students to to tell us what they want next. What does the future look like for you with regards to access and inclusion? And within there, we listed 10 priorities. And actually, the top two are all pedagogical. Uh, and they, they rated those priorities over more individual, tangible stuff like increased supports, increased mm-hmm. grants. You know, so they actually wanted the retention of the recorded lectures. Yeah. And indeed, choice and assessment was another big one for yeah. them. So how yeah. can they actually have different pathways to demonstrate their learning? Yeah. So Very I thought good. that was really interesting. Yeah. Brilliant. So... Our other guest today is Alva Kennedy, and to just tell the listeners that I had the privilege actually last year of meeting Alva because Alva came out and did a piece on how to get around with a guide dog. And That's right, we, yourself we, and Forrest. We, we did it in Shankill in my local area, and I have to say it was amazing because uh, I've done it, some things like this, but uh, Alva just did it like it was a walk in the park, basically. Well, it was. <laughs> And what was really interesting was it was at the kind of in the beginning, wasn't it, of COVID? It was there last summer. And it was people were still, I think we were in the 5K or maybe 2K and we couldn't travel outside. And it was amazing. It was still pavements cluttered, you know, the outdoor living all, you know, they didn't really understand that actually you can't do that because the guide dog is going to. It was very interesting for me to see you as well trying to get around Shank Hill And it was a really, really hot day. Mm. So a lot of people were out and about. They were outside pubs and stuff yeah, like that. So yeah. they were sitting on chairs outside. And Forrest couldn't work his way around them because yeah. I think things had changed a little yeah. for him. Yeah. So it was just a really interesting report and how the guide dogs as well said, we'll be able to, I suppose, change their routines and that kind of thing and teach them. They'll be able to teach them to be two meters and that mm. kind of thing when they're at the top of queues which, and which supermarkets and all that, yeah. which you yeah. can't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> guide dogs don't know social distancing, mm. you know. So, so Alva, can I ask you to tell us about your background? I know you've been working in RTE as a correspondent for a number of years, but could you tell me about, say, your early years as a journalist to talk to us about the changes you've seen in Ireland? 
Regarding yeah, access. I'm in RTE nearly 20 years, 18 years, so I'm proper institutionalised, I suppose, is the word. I'm there since I was 23, in my 40s now, and I got this job as um, social affairs and religion correspondent about a year and a half ago. So just at the start of the pandemic, I don't remember, I was trying to recall, I don't remember the word pandemic coming up in the interview because at that stage it was something that our foreign desk was dealing with. Still, it was something that was over there. And then I got the job as the pandemic hit here and then I ended up in isolation for three weeks, which I was absolutely mortified about because, and and that's just COVID, isn't it? We all had to learn that, you know, there's nothing we can do once this virus hits a household or whatever. You just have to stay put. So I thought, uh, I was panicking. I said, oh my God, my bosses are just going to like, just, I was just mortified, you know, um, bringing in sick within four days probably of getting the job. After that, then I think I made up for it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I went back to an office where social distancing had been implemented. The people who had worked right through were already kind of used to Zoom calls, that kind of thing. We had to, while we could go beyond the five kilometres, it was very difficult to get people outside of their homes you know so we could we could go to their homes say for example if it was in Dublin and do it outside their back garden the interviews outside their back garden but a lot of them we were resorting to Zoom and everybody was learning about Zoom I did an entire report about older people the whole thing was on Zoom where they were doing an art class on Zoom and the teacher was on Zoom and I was there as well so it was just bizarre Mm. I hadn't even heard of Zoom the year Mm. before Mm. so everything changed on that front and yet we were the ones who were relaying to the public what was happening regarding the virus and how people were coping um, and on top of the social affairs brief and the religion brief and of course churches and mosques and everything were impacted they put the nursing homes brief on me as well so they said you take care of nursing homes and I said okay um, and it was beginning to take off at that stage and then it just it probably overtook the brief to an extent. I was just on nursing homes all the time and trying to get answers from nursing homes themselves, the HSE, the Department of Health. There was a lot of toing, froing, trying to get some kind of clarity because there was a lot of worry amongst families and worry in the homes themselves. So if you rang a nursing home, they're not going to answer the phone. And yet we felt we need to tell them, tell the public what's happening. So it was very difficult, that initial phase. It was a couple of months later before I met you in Forest. So things had kind of calmed down a bit. Slightly, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I know you've had a lot of different experiences working as a journalist, but can you just kind of give us your take on how you see Ireland has progressed or maybe not progressed as much? Or I'm talking about the way we treat people, our marginalized groups you know we have a lot we have a different society now from many years ago a lot more different groups ethnic culture all that we've changed hugely but can you tell me in your 20 years of journalism do you see we are getting there to what we're trying to talk on this podcast about and trying to encourage people is to make Ireland a more accessible and inclusive place so it's changed dramatically and it's even changed hugely in the last five years you know so I mean okay it's changed dramatically in the last 20 years but if you go back to say for example the marriage referendum and then into the referendum on the eighth amendment they were two big milestones and then we have a lot of migration obviously um, as well 
I did a piece, uh, a series on racism earlier this year, and it is very troubling, I think, to see how people are coming into this country and how they're treated, or even people who've lived in this country all their lives, and they may be a person of colour or, you know. So I think there is a problem there in terms of difference. And yet, when we come to, say, disabilities, People were saying to me, well, you know, um, people with disabilities were saying to me, well, COVID has shown the rest of the country what we have been enduring for all our lives. You know, that kind of isolation, loneliness, feeling like you're not heard. So I thought in a way that COVID, well, I felt my job was to give those people a voice and get them answers and say, for example, families who couldn't get their children into daycare or or get any relief at all. Why was that? Like, and why were we talking about other industries, for example, and yet there was uh, families in dire straits. Mm. So I think it's changed dramatically. With change comes fear. And I think that's, that's a problem. And you do have the rise of the right across Europe, I think, to a lesser extent here, but it's it's still there and we're all aware of it. But I think that for the moment, I think COVID was the distraction. It brought everyone together at the start and now we're coming out of it. So it'll be interesting to see where we land, you know. Like, I, I would like to think always because, and I know Dara would be the same probably because we've worked in the area of higher education for number of years and I always like to think that there's a good side to to everything and I, I'm, I'm hoping that by people like you've just described how life is like for people with disabilities there's a very good article in the journal about a lady who's visually impaired but she is a cane she doesn't have a guide dog but she has a condition that her eyes wouldn't look blind so to speak and she said for the whole of COVID nobody believed her she was blind so she kept getting told to stop jumping the queue or She should be socially distancing. And she said it was so insulting and outrageous and unbelievable. She couldn't believe it that she's now thinking, even though she's afraid of guide dogs, she's going to get a guide dog because she said people just don't seem to know. If they can't see it, they can't understand it. That was her experience. So I thought that was very kind of telling because I I would like to think that people have maybe learned a bit of more respect for, we'll say, for accessibility, especially. I think there might be a problem with, still, with hidden disabilities and that lack of awareness. And maybe we need to do more to to highlight that. Because I do think people are very reactive visibly, you know, and they just just don't think of what other people may be going through. They may have been more aware at the start of COVID, but then again, people were locked away yeah. in their homes. So that awareness probably remained in a bubble. And now as we exit it, it's questionable. Now, I don't want to be all doom and gloom. Yeah. You know? I lost my sight in 1993 and it was optic nerve damage. So it was a brain condition. So my eyes never went. They never died, even though, you know, your eyes can die because they're an organ, right? So, but I never wear glasses because if I wear sunglasses, I can't see a thing. I can and I have light perception and a bit of colour, so I always need it because it makes me feel happier, <laughs> to be honest, that I have a bit yeah, of light, of course, you know, yeah. seriously. And so I've never worn sunglasses. The first few years I used a cane and truthfully, until I lost my sight, I was terrified of dogs. Right? That was my whole life. 
terrified of dogs. So I never, I was thinking, I can't get a guide dog. But after a few years, you get on the dart, you get on the bus, and you, excuse me, is this wherever? Because they never put the announcement on. And people wouldn't answer you, and they just assume that you're you're not well. Or It was always because they, my eyes didn't look blind. So the other day, I think myself and Jessica were coming down the slope to come out of UCD, and because I don't look blind, this car was a little bit rude, right? And again, it's it's just, I think people make assumptions. Dara, have you had come across that your staff have yeah. different disabilities? So. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, in my experience, uh, once people are educated and they understand something, they're much better prepared to, um, much more prepared to respond. But also, I think what I find is that when, when inclusion means changing something that you're doing, then it becomes a, a different issue. That's where people are more likely to, to push back. So in, I think in theory, very few people would, would not consider themselves inclusive people, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, of course I agree with that, yeah. But what it, when it actually says, okay, this is actually about you reflecting on your own behaviour and changing your own behaviour to recognise that people will react and interact with you differently and need different things from you in order to kind of make sure where everybody is included. So I think that's where um, that's where we, we need to do a lot of work culturally. You know, I still think there's incredibly negative perceptions of disability generally. I'll give you an example. We did a, a survey with employers earlier this year, and the first word that comes to mind with disability, the two biggest in the sort of word cloud bubble of these responses, is limited or challenged. You know, so it's still this very deficit model thinking about disability. Whereas the people with disabilities that I know where you know, that that's not a word I would ever associate with them. So I still think we have a huge amount to do culturally. Uh, but I think generally we're getting into a place where people are on the whole a little bit more tolerant of diversity and inclusion than, than we were maybe 10 years ago. And sometimes you can get caught in a negative place because you hear the stories of people's interactions on a daily basis and those things are always going to happen. But if we take the broad view and look back where we were even 10, 15, 20 years Absolutely. ago, it's different. Yeah. I think it's interesting as well, like... There's, there is a more of an awareness in government. So Micheál yeah. Martin said in the Dáil about two or three weeks ago, you know, I want to get people with disabilities into work. That's the most important thing. And I just thought that was quite interesting. That came after leaders' questions, you know, primetime mm. slot in the Oireachtas, mm. where he knew he was being heard. And I had just done a report, actually, and where... Um, there was a girl doing communications out in DCU and she's deaf, but she can lip read. And she was brought in for an internship. And it was just interesting how she explained how she had to, um, you know, say to people. And she was, see, she was good at saying to people, turn around, I need to see your lips, you know, that kind of thing. So it's, it kind of goes two ways as well, because some people don't want to offend. And yet, and the other person may have to guide to an extent. Mm. Um, so, And I think some employers are frightened are they frightened of the unknown because it's not common enough i wonder that we have I, enough people I, with I, disabilities i think in it's just my take on this because it's very interesting because yeah. we had an experience of this very recently in this university where i'm the accessibility officer so i'm tasked with trying to assist to get equipment or making buildings accessible or creating awareness or all those things so um we had this incident of the same thing and and this is <laughs> I know people give out about political correctness, but this was kind of somebody who's a very educated person. So they should have just said, they should have come they, they, to tell me exactly what they wanted, right? And they couldn't say what the disability was. So they went around the world for about two weeks, right? And I still was none the wiser. Yeah. And eventually the person I work with in the States realised what they were talking about. So we were able to then assist them. But that to me is, do we need to get beyond that? Yeah. 
because they what they were doing was actually a disservice to the student because they delayed purchasing the equipment. You know, so because they couldn't tell me what it was. And I, I had no idea for two weeks, so I had to kind of guess. And eventually the estate services who's we work with who were brilliant and really practical and they went over and said, yeah, I know what it is now, Tina. <laughs> I think as well there's a bit of a role for uh, organisations like our own and yeah. even the, the school system in, in building the self-advocacy skills for, for uh, students and themselves as well in terms of you know how to be a constructive advocate. Mm. And because I think often what happens is students can be silent and yeah. uh, they can sit there and feel very frustrated and very anxious and it can actually come to a flashpoint where rather than it being solved much further yeah. earlier on in the process, and I think there's kind of a, a role for uh, all parties to play, I yeah. think, in, in, um, in building those skills. I think advocacy is brilliant. And it's it's something that they're starting to do a lot of it in the guide dogs. Mm. And it's the same thing. It's trying to show the guide dog owners who would who are reticent, you know, to because the other part of life is, obviously, if, if you have a visible disability, you can't escape. <laughs> so yeah. I can't escape ever. Because I also have a giant guide dog. But it wouldn't be even that. It's because I can't escape. Because I'm blind, right? But I think people it's always it's changing now which I really think is a positive thing as well in Ireland that you're not always labelled as the angry blind person or the angry whatever I think people are understanding now that actually the person's just learning how to speak and be more assertive in a good way and show you what they need as opposed to being kind of branded that angry woman It's a kind of a lack of understanding about yeah. what there is about. I mean, really, what there is about is actually trying to address the the disadvantage that those individuals have had because of the inaccessibility of our pedagogy, of our classrooms, uh, because maybe they, they will have had to have some of them will have to have missed time in class because of medical appointments. So it's actually it's actually kind of readdressing that. So that's like they're actually looking at moves. Um, for example, with the Here scheme, which is a, a similar scheme for people from socioeconomically disadvantaged areas, and they're looking at changing the language around that to be more of a, a bonus point system. Um, so rather than reduce points, you're getting in less points than than others. That actually, the, the it's 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 addressing it by a bonus points by saying we understand that this is because of our inaccessible systems yeah. and barriers, and we're making something yeah. doing something about it. That's that's yeah, that's very positive. And Alva, can I just ask you, say this year, as well as working with the various areas, have you noticed people being more courteous <laughs> when you're out and about? To or to each other? Yeah, or to anyone, you know, like in the, <laughs> given the fact that we all had to jump out of each other's way and have you noticed a more... Like uh, we, we would have a new way of working now in terms of just, you, I mean, listen, it's no more than anyone else. You don't shake someone's hand when you rock up to do a report or anything like that and... Hmm. I suppose some of it I had to think about, for example, if I was doing some a story on someone with a disability and I, then I was saying, well, can we shoot in your window because that person couldn't get out, you know, that kind of way. Yeah. Or um, so or if they were confined to a wheelchair, how do I how do we work around that? And people were really, really accommodating, though, I have to say. Yeah. Um, and we tried to do as much as we could outside with the two metres dif- distance, probably with masks back. You know, it's all a blur now, but now we'd be outside without yeah. the masks. Yeah. Um, it, but still with maintaining the two metre distance um, and inside one of us would wear a mask so it'd normally be me and I'd let the interviewee take the mask off yeah. because it's better as well visibly I think anyway for the viewer to be able to see the mouth 
you know, when they're when the person is talking. So there's those kind of hurdles. And like in the past as well, you'd always, well, not always, but generally you would travel with a cameraman to, to do a report. Say, for example, if I was leaving RTE in Donnybrook and I had to go to Kildare or whatever, you could hop. And if the cameraman was there in RTE, you'd hop in the car with them and you'd make your calls on the way down. Now we go in separate cars, which means that you have to do the calls en route so there's no, you know you can't write anything down you can't so you're saying can you text me can you and it, you know air codes are very beneficial to all this but it's all that kind of thing where you're trying to field calls from base which is from editors deputy editors online saying what have you got what is going to be in this have you got the name of whoever this kind of thing you know in the past you would have had someone kind of driving you as yeah. you were doing so all it's, that it's, so it's quite interesting on that front so you're kind of a far more you're, everybody on it, including myself I think we've all had to become much more self-reliant yeah <laughs> you know, we have to learn how to do a lot more which is a good thing in some ways yeah you know in the beginning I what I don't like and I don't think I ever will ever want to do this would even as a mature student I loved being in the lecture like sitting there listening because to me that was like you know you're learning about ancient Greece or whatever but it's like you might as well you know it's like watching a drama or so I loved being in the place I don't like sitting on my own I like company and I like to be able to see what's going on and listen to everything and but that part I found hard but then as the time went by it kind of got easier in the sense that the blended approach I find is actually quite good. Now you do a lot more because you have to come home and go back onto the computer. But in some ways it's, I think the work-life balance is actually, it's improving for people, you know. And then the hardest part for me, truthfully, was having a very large guide dog with no work (laughs) to do. And that was very challenging because guide dogs are not designed to sit as pets you know, they're workers. They they need a job. They need to do something every day. And that was very difficult trying to occupy him. And because now what I did do was every Friday I went on the bus, mm. irrespective of when it was, I put my mask on and we went on the bus so I could keep him focused in some way or that he thought he was going to work, you know. So I did that. I kept that up. So I found all that part very hard, but I don't mind the kind of work. I think it's a bit less stressful for the travel part but definitely with a guide dog that's the part I found the hardest they only have that's their focus in life they and don't is, want to sit he, around you know is so. he coming out of restrictions well no he's kind of got, <laughs> that's a very good cool question like all. he's gone feral <laughs> <laughs> that's the truth he's wild he's yeah. he's even cheekier you know he's kind of he, he is like we call him Mr. Ed he's the talking dog like he really is but He's kind of even looks a bit wilder, you know, because mm. the hair is really long and he's kind of like, are you having a laugh, you know? But he's, <laughs> he's <laughs> you think I'm doing that now, you know? But he's, no, he's, he's, and yes, when you get him back on down to the bus stop, he's dying to get on the bus. He charges on and he's delighted. And I think coming in here, then he sees all the millions of people and action and all the squirrels and water <laughs> oh, they're such highly trained animals you can <laughs> yeah. imagine it would be uh, it'd be very easy for them to if yeah oh, loads of guide, that, that has happened with like it is true like guide dogs have had to retire and uh, the, the ones that were very it was very hard for was the ones who were brand new mm-hmm. and they didn't know their roots and the the, the partnership hadn't really start you know because it's like you have to kind of glue with the dog 
And luckily, I was very lucky because Forrest had been working for a few years, so he, he knows the route still, and he still stands up when we come up to the slope to come in here on the bus. And But it was more the fact that he had had a lot of free time <laughs> yeah, I think it's to sit around, you know. We did, so, a, we did yeah. a piece of research about the experiences of students with disabilities in higher education and learning from home, and we got exactly that kind of same message about these hugely mixed experiences, huge amounts of positives and negatives about the experience. I mean, people with disabilities, I think there might be an assumption almost, oh, surely they loved remote learning, yeah. you know, yeah. partly because yeah. of that thing where it's it's still largely associated with physical disability. When yeah, that's, exactly. That's the yeah. thing that comes that's to true. mind. Yeah. But uh, actually, uh, about 50% of the learners wanted to return to the way it was, uh, the status quo, uh, whereas about 50% actually wanted either uh, uh, something approaching a, a blended learning experience, which is, I think was about 40% uh, yeah. roughly wanted that, and then about 10% would prefer to remain fully online post-COVID. Yeah. So I think you get this really mixed experiences yeah. but then yeah. some of the stuff that came in was actually really transformative and it was really revealing in I suppose the issues that we have within our teaching and learning practices I'm thinking of one student in particular who uh, made this comment about how he had failed his exams in the first year that he was in and then second year when everything went to this uh, remote learning and they switched it up to do alternative assessments and open book assessments he was in the top five to ten of his class in the same modules yeah. This change in the assessment instrument was absolutely vital for him. Yeah. So yeah. it really highlights that we need yeah. to offer these options for learners so to, to be able to demonstrate. I their yeah, I think it's all about, it really is, even though, you know, we, we bandied the word around so much, but diversity, isn't it? Like mm. it's diverse way of doing it's more, ways, more than one way to skin a cat. <laughs> I mean, it is interesting <laughs> in terms of... Um, <laughs> The technology in our own newsroom, yeah. how it changed. And beyond Zoom, for example, I had forgotten this, but during the first wave, we had one of the news editors at home and she had the camera on her computer on all the time. And she, we are used to the news editor at the news desk, driving mm. everything, directing the newsroom, what to do. Mm. And she was at home for those couple of months and typing away but they had a camera in the newsroom that could see everybody else so you'd be walking a pass and you'd hear Ava and it's coming where is that coming voice coming from it was coming from this tv and it was really fascinating to sit back and watch her she'd be working away typing away so her head would be down and then she'd look up and she'd spot someone and she could ask them just ask them as if she was in the newsroom I just thought it was amazing that is amazing that's like Star Trek yeah 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 I was saying hologram next of her now Yeah. yeah Uh, what do you call those avatars yeah. Yeah. but there's Ava. kind of yeah you can kind of yeah. imagine that that's in a way that's a little bit where we're headed in that yeah. you know I think huge amounts of organisations now are moving back to a hybrid or, or fully remote solutions and they're recognising they can tap into talent all over the country yeah. or even all over the world yeah. um, so I think it's going to totally change the way yeah. we go about being workers and, and in the world the good thing about it is, as well I think is that people are able to live where they'd like to live now mm-hmm. And move home or go wherever they want. And I think a big thing about this is when we get kind of more into this different way of living, if it stays like this with the, say, blended approaches, that we all have to learn how to trust people more and the employer has to trust the person Mm -hmm. that they're actually working when they're at home as well. Yeah, arguably you do. Well, certainly I'd say a lot of people do far more. Yeah, Um, yeah. You know, mine is hybrid. I go into the office, but I go home and still work. work. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. so you could be there. Actually, more work is done. Days, you know, you know thirteen I, hour days. I think people are working much more and much harder. And I think that if we say continue to try and promote an accessible culture and society here everywhere, I think it will actually help people yeah. to understand a lot. So. Yeah, definitely. I think people are understanding. 
because they've experienced the benefits of the flexibility in their own lives, yeah. they're going to be more, hopefully, more understanding. More, and yeah, with and a bit more aware of yeah. people, different people. Yeah. You know, so on that note, I'd like to say a huge thank you to you both. But before we end, we have to ask you our favourite question. Since the show is called The Blind Spot, what is your blind spot, Alva? My blind spot is, I think it's myself. I think I have a tendency to probably put other people, I've been told, (laughs) I put other people ahead of myself and I probably don't take care of myself enough. So I'm not good enough at probably giving myself that downtime that I need. I suppose I'm conscious as well of um, remaining healthy and trying to stay healthy, but I just need to be a bit more careful of not not burning out. So the blind spot is myself, I need to cop on. Yeah, well, you know, that's very honest and mm. it's true. So, I mean, I don't mean it's true, but it's true. It's true <laughs> that people don't do that. Like, my thing in life is I can never say no. Yeah, agreed. So. I'm the same. I can never say no when I see your number turning up on my phone. To <laughs> <laughs> fair point, fair point. She has a way. <laughs> anyway, Tara. What is your blind spot? I suppose, yeah, it is something with me. You'd probably, you should ask my colleagues. They'd probably tell you much better than me. But I think it's probably that I'm an insanely positive person. Like People take the make out of me for it all the time. Uh, so my friends and that do. Uh, so I suppose in my work sometimes, it can lead for me to think sometimes that things are rosier than the air. And sometimes I get brought crashing back to earth by the stories of students when they share them with me. Students or, or uh, graduates with disabilities. So I suppose maybe that's a bit of a blind spot in me in that. You know, I think it's a positive and a negative quality sometimes, but that's something I always have to be wary of. So I suppose we try and counteract that by, by having as many people with disabilities in the organisation as we possibly can. Probably about to half to our give staff you are a reality check. To give me the reality check. And also <laughs> we, we have a, a great Students with Disabilities Advisory Group that would be very influential in, in, uh, in our building our policy platform and our work. So yeah, that we try to address that blind spot in me by, uh, by building those things in. Really good answer. So I'd just say again, thanks a million. It's been a really interesting chat and you're very, very decent to come in and give us all your time and energy. Thanks <laughs> and answer for our us, questions. Gina. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. It's lovely and lovely to meet you all. Yeah, as well. you too, Darren. Thanks for listening to The Blind Spot. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe. Until next time on The Blind Spot. The Blind Spot podcast was funded under the University for All Faculty Partner Programme and developed with the support of the UCD College of Business and UCD Access and Lifelong Learning.